and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we discuss issues which are often underreported in the press, but which we think are still very important. We also discuss our heroes and villains of the week. I'm delighted this week to be joined by two illustrious guests, Mark Wallace, Executive Editor of Conservative Home, and Victoria Bateman, Cambridge economist and regular contributor to Unheard. So, Victoria, um, I'd like to start with you. What is your underreported story of the week? So, I, w- I want to weave together two stories from Unheard this week. And the first one's by Henry Olson. It's called The Flyover Town That Dogged a Decline. It's Levertown in Pennsylvania. And there, Henry talks about not the towns that have been left behind in the post industrial world, the ones in the Rust Belt that we all know about. Um, but but town a town that has actually succeeded that has defeated decline and I think what's interesting about his piece is that um, in addition to pointing to the economic factors that have perhaps allowed this town to reinvent itself he also points to uh, personal character as well the character of the Levitowners um, he he quotes um, a, a local woman saying that Levitowners are survivors you know that they have grit. Um, And then there's another story um, by Michael Burley, um, China's campaign for moral restoration. So this is a moral crusade from the president of China trying to make China more moral through education programs for the young and other things. And, And it got me thinking a little bit because there is increasing research coming out of universities that points to the importance of character as a determinant of how successful you are in life. So, of course, typically we put personal success down to talents and how brainy you are. But increasingly, research shows that um, personal character is important. Um, Now, this, of course, goes back to the famous marshmallow test. Do we know about the marshmallow test? Is that something you eat? Ah, so, well, it can be either marshmallows or cookies. It was an experiment done at the University of Stanford back in the late 60s and 70s. It was done on children. So unsuspecting children would be brought into a room, would be presented with a marshmallow in front of them and would be told if they resisted the marshmallow for a mere 15 minutes, they could have two instead. And what the researchers found is that those children with most self-control, those that were able to resist, actually ended up with the better life prospects in terms of health and um, skills and earnings. There's been um, probably the most recent piece of research in this vein that was discussed in the Harvard Business Review back in April that finds that there are three personality traits that lead to success in life. Being um, hardworking, um, being an extrovert and being disagreeable. So those are the three personality traits that lead to the highest lifetime earnings. So I, I think it's quite provocative, this idea that is it personal character that is the thing that leads us to be successful in life? Now, I think it is slightly dangerous because, of course, this takes us almost back to the Victorian view that if people are unsuccessful, then it's their own personal moral failings, their own personal character that is to blame. So I think it's interesting, but at the same time, um, I, I think it's, it's something we might want to be a little bit careful with. I mean, it, it's very interesting, and it's interesting how you've drawn those two stories um, together. I mean, I suppose the, the thing is, it's how do you define what character is? Mm. 
And character can be, you know, very different components and very different people. And in terms of what makes you um, successful, there's so many different theories mm. now. I mean, my favourite one on, on social media is, you know, the, the, the five things that really successful people do before like six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I think, God, I'm just getting in at that time. You know, sort of. <laughs> but um, so, Mark, what, what's your take on this? Do you think there is like a secret formula to success around this thing called character? What is it? Well, I mean, this is uh, certainly a debate that's dominated the education world in recent years. This question of whether rather than instilling perhaps facts or, or what we used to call key skills, when I was at school, maybe schools ought to instill what's referred to as grit. And there is a lot of scepticism among some educationalists as to whether it really exists or whether you can do it deliberately or not. What I find really interesting is the way, to a certain extent, this goes back to things that had been generally assumed at one time, almost universal beliefs at one time, and they're then widely been rubbished, and they're starting to creep back. It's quite interesting, Jordan Peterson, obviously a, a controversialist at the moment, in his one of the critiques of his book is, well, aren't these things all obvious? You know, you should say what you mean you should try and act with honor etc etc however they might be they, they might once have been obvious but they no longer are and yet there is a fascinating discussion about whether these underlying truths once dismissed as old wives kind of sayings actually still have some power maybe they are accurate if you think about to say it's interesting you mentioned victoria the um, the victorians um rudyard kipling the kind of bard of uh, low victorian culture to a certain extent much sneered at his poem the the gods of the copybook page is all about exactly the fact that actually no matter how one might try and escape these old sayings that are viewed as kind of cheesy actually perhaps they have a, a truth at their heart about the human condition but some of it i mean I mean, like some of it is really blindingly obvious if you work really hard, if you're really good, if you don't eat all the marshmallows, if you don't drink all the drinks all the time and you sort of get up and, you know, you you have a better chance of of success. And actually what's interesting, you know, I think a lot of people from immigrant backgrounds when they come to, you know, the we've come here to build a better life, those qualities are really instilled in their children. And Im- immigrants are 70% more likely than British people to set up their own business, yeah. for example. But there is also the inescapable fact that there are some structural issues which are beyond your control. And it's this argument where you can have somebody who can rise from nothing, you know, your sort of you know rags to riches story, but that doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't make it is somehow lazy. I mean, I remember a, a really interesting study that um, Professor John Hills did, uh, actually when I was a special advisor in government for, for the Equalities Office, and this is a, a statistic and a, a thing we've heard many times that actually a lot of for a lot of children their life chances are determined by the time they're about two and a half in terms of their uh, socioeconomic yeah. status, the um, education of their parents, the attention from their yeah. parents, the stimulation they get in their lives. So what's your final wrap-up on this, Victoria, in terms so of how I, much of it is individualism and how much is structure? Do you know, what, what I want to say is is that it leads to a much bigger question and one actually that I think is of interest to all Unherdians, and that is the relationship between capitalism and character. Now, is capitalism something that destroys character? And does that lead to a great contradiction? Because capitalism, in a sense, only works well if we have um, the right moral character, let's say, um, if, we're, if we're trustworthy and, and, and so on. And so the big overhanging question is, is there this great contradiction that capitalism relies on us being characterful people and yet destroys that character? Now, I think it doesn't. I think actually that capitalism does encourage moral behaviour. But of course, that isn't the traditional view of the church that sees capitalism as 
morally corrupting, or of Marxists, who of course agree with the church that capitalism is responsible for all of human failures and that if we have a big communist revolution, not even murder will will exist. But what about the view that quite a lot of people, and we discuss it a lot on Unheard, when capitalism goes very badly wrong, as it has been going quite badly wrong, yeah. where you don't actually see moral character, you see greed, you see human frailty. Yeah. And also you see a lot of people not being able to invest in the concept of capitalism when they have none, particularly yeah. young people. Mark, what, what, what do you think? Well, it's all a question of uh, precisely what, what we mean in terms of, for example, equality, back to the age-old debate about equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. And, oh, it's and, like Jordan Peterson is in the room. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll try and make my voice a bit squeakier and lose, lose, lose about 30 kilograms. <laughs> Give me a menacing um, stare as well, but, uh, please. I'll, I'll, I'll just stay off into the corner in a slightly <laughs> passive-aggressive way. Um, but... It's also, I think, about this question of, to a certain extent, that you know, there's there's a misunderstanding when people talk about well, money is the root of all evil, and they kind of par- paraphrase the 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 gospel, the gospels on that. Actually, it was the worship of money, the pursuit of money above all other things that was the, the root of all evil. And in fact, I think there there are places ways in which you can find happy cultural kind of mediums between these different systems that don't have to be antagonistic all the time. And I I, I do remember because it's a bit like the thing you know, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think the same is true of of wealth and mm. and and material things. I mean, there was this great study done where she said that there's there's a certain point of money beyond which you actually don't become that much happier, no matter how much more you yeah. you earn. Um, which is good. Which um, is why our fees for unheard are kept at a very as, as, level. as Margaret Thatcher famously said, of course, the, the the Good Samaritan wouldn't have been able to help if he hadn't had any money. <laughs> well, we all need some money. That's to be fair. Right, um, Mark. Coming to you for your underreported story, very interesting, a slightly sinister story here. Yes, well, there, there are kind of some uh, slightly peculiarly light parts of this story and some very, very dark parts of this story. I think the the, the initial story that jumped out at me is um, uh, is from Australia, a man in, in Sydney who's been fined, he's been engaged in this very peculiar legal battle with the Sydney Transport Authorities because he is what's called a transhumanist, something that I know is, is covered from time to time on, on Unheard. He, he's fascinated by the potential for technology to improve or alter the human condition. He calls himself a cyborg from time time to time, by which he means he's got the equivalent of Sydney's Oyster card, he's cut out the RFID tag, that's the, the bit that goes beep beep, uh, he's put it under the skin in his hand. So yeah. when he goes to uh, the barriers, he's never going to have left his card at home, he can <laughs> swipe his hand and it goes beep beep. Now that might be convenience, it might be because you become the kind of urban uh, light rail equivalent of Obi-Wan Kenobi in o- opening doors by waving your hands at them. Um, but he has been fined for not being able to produce a valid ticket. Um, it's quite a peculiar case because he had a balance, I think fourteen dollars and or Australian dollars and, and and some change on his card. It was legitimate. The authorities have decided this is not acceptable, and he was therefore uh, fined for it. One peculiar side point of this, which starts to point to some of the eccentricities around um, would-be cyborgs, is the gentleman's name is now. Let me check. Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. Um, I don't know if he go, has an abbreviated short nickname that he tends to go by. Probably just Meow um, Meow. Prob- probably Meow Meow. I don't know. Theresa May's made that illegal in this country, so um, we shall see. But the interesting thing about this, I think, is that this is a peculiar kind of undercurrent, a subculture that exists in which people are 
privately experimenting on their own bodies with with what's called biohacking with medical technology um partially as a hobby partially as an outgrowth of a philosophical view that that actually um leaving medical research to establish companies to states and and do, doing things like waiting for regulations to slowly uh, grind away in safety perhaps holds back technological and medical advancement and um obviously the the instance of Mr Meow Meow's case which is now appealing so we'll, we'll see what happens in Sydney, is uh, perhaps a lighter end of that. At the darker end of that, uh, there's uh, another quite notorious case um, in America, uh, a man called Aaron Trawick, who became quite notorious a few months ago when he publicly injected himself with an untested, unauthorised, unregulated potential theoretical gene therapy for herpes um, at a public event. And part of his argument was that uh, tests on gene therapies are are enmeshed and bogged down in all sorts of regulatory uh, processes. He wanted to sort of shortcut it it all. He could show that this would, he could show that this would work. And, you know, he chose herpes, as he said, because if they could just cure herpes in a heartbeat, then they could move straight on to dealing with the big boys like cancer. Um, Now, in his case, that that was obviously very controversial at the time. Sadly, at the end of April, he was uh, found dead at a spa in Washington, D.C. Now, it's it's not yet known exactly what happened to him, what the circumstances of his death were. But again, the eccentricities of this already eccentric movement uh, become clear because he his death immediately surrounded in that community by all sorts of conspiracy theories. Did Big Pharma bump him off? Was it medical regulators in the States were jealous of their position being threatened? Were there other people in the biohacking community who disliked his notoriety? Uh, for that matter, was it his, could it have been his cure, supposedly, that, that, that killed him or other forms of reckless experimentation? But I find it fascinating that... As much as we, we quite often talk about our world as being kind of hidebound and wrapped up in red tape and nobody wants to take risks anymore, actually, there's always people who are, going to, who, who are tempted for good or ill by these in, interesting kind of living at the edge kind of technological approaches. I mean, I have to say, I'm not entirely... I mean, I felt the story was really interesting. I wasn't entirely surprised about it. I actually... There was a comedian who used to have a, a great sketch about just that, putting... Uh, the little thing in their in their hands, so they could look like some sort of magician. And here we are talking about it as a real life thing. I mean, in terms of technology and melding that with the human body, I think that's just a matter of time. You know, I think um, we'll soon be having contact lenses that pop up lots of information for us. You know, I think there's a whole crazy, weird, and wonderful and terrifying world ahead of us where we become sort of part human, part sort of payment chip. Um, but the interesting thing about the the testing medicines on yourself, I mean, that I find, again, unsurprising, but very, very disturbing because it does remind you that, you know, health and safety and regulations, I know they're boring, I know they're red tape, I know they're big state, but sometimes they are sort of there for quite a good reason. Yeah. Victoria, what, what so, was your take on this? So it's interesting. Just yesterday, um, Donald Trump signed the Right to Try Act in the US. And that means that patients with life-threatening um, diseases can try experimental drugs bypassing the standard regulation and approval agencies with only the approval of their doctor and the drug company. 
So this means now that if something goes wrong in the process of trying an experimental drug, that the doctors and the drug company concerned are protected from um, any form of legal ah, liability. Oh, so they exempt themselves right. from any... Mm. See, I have to say, I mean, I, I suppose... I mean, I suppose one can't really stop people. You can't really stop people doing... We've had many conversations yes. about agency over yes. one's body. Yes. But, you know, and I actually, to be fair, a lot of people already go down a kind of self-medicating route, sometimes trying people, trying to sort of think, well, I'm, I'm going to be going to turn my back on traditional drugs for cancer treatments. I'm going to try and go down a, a different route. I suppose it's something which you aren't really going to be stopping and you can't do. But the one thing is how much of it develops as a trend with young people to the point where, you know, they are really putting themselves in harm's way. Indeed. And as you say, you often see people who are very seriously ill um, for very for very good and very clear reasons, choosing to experiment in this way. We, we've seen that in terms of the creeping uh, and welcome and overdue legalisation of cannabis, for example. Yeah. And, and actually, medical uses have become the, the kind of cutting edge of that where business and medicine kind of, kind of managed to ally to, to to change laws in various countries. Um, it's interesting, the House of Lords has also, there's been some discussion in the last year or so of a right to try question in the UK of actually whether experimental uh, drugs um, for terminal patients, whether, whether they might have the same same right to opt in. What I suppose I'm also interested in is this idea of people using these technologies not for those reasons. Yes. So personally, I'm uh, very, I, I broadly describe myself as kind of generally kind of transhumanist in my, in, in my kind of view. I'm right. very, very interested in um people who are looking at technological applications for people in in normal day-to-day life on really big questions the fact is there are technologists in the world there are scientific researchers in in the world right now looking at questions of how drastically could you extend human life for, for example could you in fact eventually um produce human immortality theoretically these things i think are really interesting as an individual on an individual basis but also socially i don't think we're anywhere near prepared kind of psychologically and socially for the kind of challenges that some of these technologies bring forward personally i'm very interested in it my wife thinks it's all horrendous and why would you <laughs> let anybody the implant immortality ter- i just could barely get through my 40th birthday let alone thinking about <laughs> sort of immortality but again it's so interesting because at the other end of the debate is a big resurgence in the argument, should we have agency over how we choose to die? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have these technology people saying, how can we live forever? And you have lots of people saying, well, should we now give ourselves the right to choose our exit from this from this world? It is, it is very um, interesting. I mean, do, do you believe that these technology people can find the solution to do, immortality? Well, do you know, um, when you look at the history of science and the history of medicine, so going all the way back to the Enlightenment in the 1700s and 1800s, you know, it was a very unregulated world. Science was new. Um, it, it was the next step on, really, from magic and um, astrology. Um, you look at the work of um, of Marie Curie. You look at the development of the smallpox vaccine and so on. And, and a lot of this was done. Um, before regulation was in place, um, a lot of medical advances were made outside of universities. You know, many of today's universities didn't exist um, back at the time. So we were in this perhaps um, less constrained world in a sense. And then we get the development of universities, regulatory bodies and so on. And, you know, in some ways those brought benefits. They provided means through which funding could um, could be um, pushed into the sciences so that we can ad- could, could advance. But at the same time, I think that there, there are um, constraints that come from that. And I'm all for people trying their own thing, being individuals, um, 
um, breaking out of the uh, the current institutional um, box and trying to push things forward in their own way. Well, let's see, Mark, if you can make us live forever. <laughs> Well, I'm, let, let's give it a go. I'm not going to take the responsibility on myself. I've got a few blog posts to write this week. Uh, you know how it is. But um, yeah, I, I, I think. The... But do you think that's over ambitious? I mean, my my slight um, issue with some of these, and I mean, it's kind of tends to be sort of young, very visionary men that have this kind of. Is it too much? I mean, why couldn't they just be? Look, we'd like to find some cures for things. We'd like to try and make life better. Rather, We're, the, the goal is immortality. I mean, it's such a big ask let's it, be it's it quite, is a big it's ask. Hard, and, and, isn't it? It, and I think one thing that comes out of both of the stories that I, I, I suppose I cited at the start of this is there's there's inherently an egotism yes, that's bound up yes. in all of this when you're changing your name to meow meow when you're injecting yourself with radical cures it's a on god TV, complex of isn't course it? there is but equally somewhat bonkers uh, egotism is also part of that history that Victoria was just talking about yeah. so um I think it's really interesting to think about how you might be able to perhaps set up some institutions that can lightly harness some of these instincts. For example, if you look at um, what happens in, say, motoring technology, Formula One cars are completely useless, right? But people like to watch them race around really fast. And there are fringe benefit technologies that that, that spread out into all sorts of different industries. Um, why not have, for example, a parallel Olympics, an altered Olympics, in which you you don't have the same restrictions on people who aren't who who are experimenting with with uh, various drugs or biological advancements, various forms of biohacking? Why not actually say, you know what, you can have the the, the, the real Olympics, the honest Olympics, where people are just running faster, jumping higher. Why not also have one? Don't even know if we have where... the honest Olympics anymore well, with the amount but, of drug taking. But that's that but, that, but that's that's another fringe benefit of doing this. Why not have another one, altered, improved Olympics, where actually, if you want to experiment with all sorts of different technologies, you can, and it. you can have it as a field to do this. So and, we can have an ordinary we, Olympics, and we can have an off-your-face Olympics. Indeed, as well, and, and you know, and, and I, I think you would you would immediately see not these these vast uh, end, end goal um, ambitions instantly achieved. What I think you would see is you'd instantly start to see medical spin-off benefits. Excellent. Well, we look forward to this brave new world. Um, Right. We're now going to go on to our heroes and villains of the week. And actually, um, I'm going to come to you, Victoria. You had a very, uh, you had a very interesting story, which I was pretty shocked to hear about. Who is your villain of the week? So I'm going to say Donald Trump. Now, I know this is quite old hat, but um, there's a really interesting contrast happening um, just this last week between Ireland and the US. So we know, we all know about the uh, successful vote in Ireland. Um, What's happening in the US is, in fact, the reverse. So we know that Donald Trump last year introduced um, a global gag rule in which the US defunded international um, organisations and clinics that provide birth control for some of the world's poorest women if they also offer um, abortion advice or um, abortion services. Um, And this amounts to about $8.8 billion um, of funding um, of international health services. And this is one of the first executive orders that was signed, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was quite Um, an iconic picture. Yes. And it was I think it was all men signing the order. And and you know the the interesting thing here is is that the US is seen as the home of freedom. And yet when it comes to the most vital freedom that every woman deserves, freedom over their own bodies, then that's something that unfortunately is is no longer uh, veritable in in the US. So what's happened um, 
in the last few days is that this global gag rule has come home. So, so um, Trump is now proposing a domestic gag rule that would defund clinics such as um, Planned Parenthood clinics that serve about 5 million of the poorest people in the US, offering birth control, cervical smears, STD testing and other things. And I should say this, this is men as well as women yeah. that, are, that are affected. Um, and, you know, this is devastating for, for women's um, rights in the US. And, you know, when we think about the, the history of how the West grew rich, we tend to put that down to either markets, if you're from the right of the spectrum, or the state, if you're from the left, you know, the welfare state, government regulation and so on. But from a feminist point of view, what's been just as important in driving prosperity is the ability for women to control their fertility. Yep. You know, I think back to the times of my great-great-grandmother when she had something like 10 children. I mean, how could you possibly, as a mother, as a parent, keep the wolf from the door if you have an ever-increasing number of mouths um, to feed? So the ability for a woman to have bodily autonomy, to control her fertility, should she choose to do so, is absolutely essential to combating poverty and to um, lifting economies out of... And it's a, it's a human right for a woman to have the agency over her body if medicine allows it. Um, Mark, Mark, what's your sort of take on this? And what, how do you think it reads over to the Northern Ireland situation at, at the moment? Well, I think the big question, the big contrast between the United States and the Republic of Ireland is that obviously what we've seen in the Republic is this really dramatic, very quick, you know, 20 years or so, um, uh, cultural change around these topics. And ultimately, the reason why the, the reason why the issue of abortion is dragged through politics in terms of culture war is that it is at heart a cultural issue. It binds, binds in religion, binds in personal rights, you, binds in individual you know, I, liberty. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's that when the idea of freedom was first invented, which goes back to Locke and then through the 1700s and 1800s, it was invented for a man's world. And the freedoms that were discussed, that were enshrined in constitutions, were those that affected men, you know, freedom of speech, freedom to bear arms, for example, not literally, um, of course. Um, Women's freedoms, you know, that freedom over your body really wasn't something that was considered. And and so that's why it's remained so controversial. Although it is true, it it does appear to be true to say that most of the polling evidence does seem to still suggest that men are more in favour of legalising abortion than than women are. And one might suggest there are various forms of irresponsibility which lie under that. Exactly. I mean, I I think, I I do... I sort of agree with Victoria. In fact, uh, a very, you know, well-respected male commentator said to me last week, he was unsure if the um, Irish referendum would would go in the right way in terms of yes, because he said the difference between the gay vote and the abortion vote was the gay vote was essentially about men getting rights and we are better about giving men rights than we are women rights. But thankfully in Ireland... That is not the case, but very perturbing news, um, Victoria, about the, the the sort of turning the clock back. I had been watching season two of The Handmaid's Tale, so this fills me with even more horror, as you can imagine. Um, very quickly, Mark, your hero of the week, please. My hero of the week um, is Sergio Mattarella, the president of Italy, um, who I think probably without realising it has done Eurosceptics like me a great favour this week <laughs> by living out yet again that kind of infamous Jean-Claude Juncker quote that there can be no democratic choice against the European treaties. Um, and what I think is really, really fascinating is, again, a peculiar comparison. In this country, we think of Euroscepticism as something that's old and of the right. Um, in Italy, what 
appears to be happening is that actually people who are uh, young and so- somewhat left-leaning, particularly on kind of fiscal policy, public spending, that kind of thing, are being pushed towards greater scepticism of the EU institutions because the EU is trying to sit, because the EU and the elites who support it are trying to sit on their voting options. They might want to do things that I would personally, as a fiscal conservative, very much disagree with, but their right to choose to make those mistakes is being squished. And fascinatingly, it's pushing them in a direction which a lot of Italians 10 years ago would never have thought they might consider. See, I I see all of the Euroscepticism stuff and I completely acknowledge it um, and I think it is a very real thing I don't see it so much as a sort of left thing or a right thing because I know people who are you know hardcore Labour supporters you could argue the leader of the Labour Party himself right now who were pretty uh, Eurosceptical I think quite a lot of it comes down to how well to loop back to what we were saying earlier how you feel the society you're in and the economy you're in is actually working for you and your family and I think when you feel that it isn't you understandably kick back against the big institutions and the elites and the the political and the 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 status quo as you like if you and, wish and and perhaps you know one thing i discussed I think last time i was on this podcast was the idea that um in some societies perhaps like our own there's a feeling that actually it's uh, certainly over over brexit there was some uh, suggestion that it was the old who were angry and wanted this gone in other societies particularly some southern european societies where young where youth unemployment is incredibly high or a lot of people had to leave their home countries, not really through wanting to, but having to economically, is actually the young who are trying to shake things up. And I think Sergio Mattarella might be about to discover what happens if you tell people that they are not going to be allowed to do that. Do you you know what really concerns me about all this Euroscepticism? And I think you saw it in the Tory side of the Leave campaign. That is an obsession with freedom for the nation state. Now, where was freedom for the individual within that um, Brexit campaign? It's supposed to be at the heart of conservatism. And what does Europe mean? It means freedom for young people to travel beyond borders um, for personal and professional reasons, to make the most of their lives no matter where in Europe they are born. And it's that type of individual freedom that I think is underpinned by the European project that is put at risk by mm. Brexiteers and Eurosceptics in Italy alone. And I, I, I think you know, speaking as a libertarian and a Leave voter, I, I simply don't think you know, f- from my point of view, I, I think the first step towards having a society in which you can secure greater individual liberty is democratic self-government. I don't think that leaving the EU as, as say the more Farageist kind of worldview might say that'll solve everything. I don't think it will. From my point of view, what it would start to do is it turns off the tap and then you get to start bailing I, out the bank. I, I think you tell that to the families who've literally been split apart by um, the prospect um, of Brexit and the young people in this country in deprived regions that will no longer be able to travel, find work. Will no you know, longer be able to travel? I think that's simply untrue. Simply untrue. Well, uh, the, the truth is we, we don't really know how Brexit is going to shake down um, we, we know that no country in the world beyond, say, North Korea doesn't allow its young people to travel. No, but there, I mean, there, that's, there, that's a ludicrous but thing But there will be restrictions. No sand in the wheels. Mark, come back to me when we're all queuing for, like, we hours. Queue, we queue, we, the, um, <laughs> but look, we, look the, 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 the truth is, we none of us here actually know how all of this is going to shake down. I suppose the, the interesting thing about Italy is that, or Quitterly, or whatever you want, however you want to describe it, it has, whatever your views on Brexit, it has, again 
shown that there is much anxiety and discomfort with the institution yeah. of the EU across. Indeed. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how the EU handles it and whether Juncker can rein himself in in terms of unhelpful um, language. My final um, villain of the week, very quickly, uh, is Roseanne Barr. For, um, and and the, th- the interesting thing is sometimes Twitter quite largely is a cesspit and it's awful. But sometimes the good thing about Twitter is that it reveals the true character of a person, as Victoria was telling us about earlier. And funny enough, we did discover that Roseanne Barr is a pretty hideous racist individual. And quite rightly, her show has been uh, cancelled. I love the fact that she blamed um, her sleeping tablets and antihistamines. I mean, I take the odds, uh, night all doesn't make me suddenly join the BNP um, in the morning. But the, the flip side of this, and I think the hero of the week, is ABC. And the president of ABC is a woman called Channing Dungey. And she's interestingly the first ever African-American woman to lead up a big network in America. So some people are saying this is political correctness gone mad. But interestingly, she is the one who gave Roseanne Barr the opportunity to get the show back together because this woman cannily worked out that Trump supporters, you know, fly over America, Rust Belt America didn't have anything that catered for its needs culturally. So she very savvily said to Roseanne Barr, come back, you know, here's your chance to, 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 to offer something to Trump supporters in good faith. And interestingly, Roseanne Barr is the one who, who messed it up. But I think it's rare and to be lauded that a big operator took a swift decision to cancel something that is actually very successful so quickly. Now, you can argue that the advertisers would be coming down the tracks. There was a lot of criticism. But I've worked with many, many creative industries where things like this have happened and they have felt too sort of scared to really make a big stance. So I think this is quite an important move. But is, is, isn't it just that they got called out now? I mean, years before they asked, they offered her the chance to come back, let's be honest, for their own profit, going back to the question of whether, whether, whether capitalism and culture are, are, are in conflict, um, or ca- character in conflict. Um, years before that, she'd already accused Barack Obama of being behind the Boston, Boston Marathon bombing and all sorts of horrendous things. They saw the chance to bring her back, a bit of cash, quick buck on the back of uh, what they saw as something that would cash in off Trump supporters, the heat got too much from the thing they were playing with and they've backed out well, of it. No, Fine to back out of it, don't do it I in don't the first think place. it's that... No, I would... Well, see, that's... I would take a rather un- unherdian view, which is actually, even though then somebody might have views you disagree with and you might not like them as a person... You should offer them the chance to have a platform, but sure. if they but cross they, a line, they knew then that they're she'd, out. She'd crossed that line years before. I don't think she'd thought, done anything quite as bad. I mean, she as this. literally publicly wrote that the Obama administration was behind, had done the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah, that was like she five years been, ago. But th- I mean, but this was obviously now she's got her platform. You know, she's got. But at that point, she didn't have that platform. So I think this is a very, very good example of capitalism yeah. and a bit of character Absolutely. colliding. And it can be done. Yes, we can. (laughs) Well, listen, thank you so much to my guests, Victoria Bateman and Mark uh, Wallace. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Do join us again next week on the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I've been Aisha Hazarika. Thank you for listening. 